Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It is great to look out and see you this morning. Uh, you know, it's a rainy day, but uh, it's April, right? April showers bring May flowers, right? And what do May flowers bring? Pilgrims. Sorry, it's the best I can do today. <laughs> good to see you all uh, this morning. Great to see folks uh, coming back still. Uh, good to see John and Linda. Welcome back from uh, Florida. I, know there, I, I don't know if anybody else snuck in. I haven't noticed yet. Uh, Caleb, good to see you guys today. Caleb and Taylor visiting with us uh, and others as well. Good to see you. God bless you. Um, you know, as I was thinking um, over Jack's life, uh, of course, most of you, prob- probably all of you know that uh, Jack uh, was one of our charter members here at Heather Hills at the very beginning. Uh, Jack and Pearl, George and Mary, and we have a handful of others uh, still with us as well. Praise the Lord uh, in the church. Wonderful to have charter members in a church. Uh, They have really stood the test of time, right? Through all the ups and downs, all the years and decades. And I remember when I first met Jack, um, somebody introduced me to him, and he said, call me Snoopy. I didn't exactly know what to make of him at that point. And I have to admit, it took me a little while still after that to, uh, to figure, figure Jack Schultz out. But uh, what I found is a gentle man who loved this church, loved the children of this church, worked in Awana for decades, and uh, served whenever he could. He was always encouraging as I shook his hand when he would leave, even later as the diseases started to to ravish his body a little bit, and he'd be shaky, and he'd have a hard time walking, and, uh, you know, I'd shake his hand at the door, and he'd always ask me, how you doing? How you doing? Everything okay? You know, anything I can do for you? Uh, sermon was great. He'd always, he was just always encouraging, always encouraging. Never came up complaining about anything, and uh, things got real hard for, for Jack. I'm sure most of you know he took up boxing. Do you all know that? took up boxing to keep him, help himself with his mobility along the way, and uh, just a special guy, and uh, one of those guys I would have liked to have known, you know, back in, in his younger days as well, um, but uh, we will miss him, as I said to Pearl on the phone uh, last week, uh, just for a while, just for a while, we'll be, we'll be with him soon, it won't be long, so let's be in prayer for the family, uh, death is hard. But uh, Christ gives us hope, doesn't he? Well, let's turn our attention to the scriptures this morning. John chapter 18. We're discovering here that from this point on in the gospel of John, everything that has happened since the beginning of the gospel has been moving to this point. That everything that's occurred, John 1 through John 17, has been preparing us for what is about to unfold here in chapters 18 and 19, and 20, um, and then the aftermath in 21. Someone has said that the Gospels are passion narratives with long introductions. In other words, the main point of the Gospels is to get to the passion of the Lord Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. And there are long introductions to get us to that point. John's gospel, of course, is unique, isn't it, that we get there kind of early, don't we? 
uh, by John 13, halfway through the book, we are starting that last week in the life of the Lord Jesus here on earth. And um, so a lot of emphasis on the passion here in the Gospel of John. And no sooner has Jesus been introduced to us now, as we've just finished the wonderful prayer of the Lord in John 17, no sooner do we feel like we're finally getting to know him in all of his richness, that he is going to be snatched away from us. And that snatching away happens beginning here in chapter 18. With all the drama that's about to unfold on this night, you might think that the focus, as we just read the scriptures, that the focus would be on the hundreds of soldiers coming to arrest Jesus, or perhaps the spotlight shining down on the traitor Judas. But maybe the religious authorities, too, the Pharisees that are mentioned here, the chief priests who, who have uh, kind of masterminded this plot against him. But the focus of this story is not on any of them. The focus of this story, as all the stories in the Gospel of John, remains solidly on Jesus himself. And you can see this as we unpack these verses together. I'm going to lead us through this in four parts. Part number one, Jesus drives his destiny. We see in the first four verses. You know, at every point in this gospel, I hope you've noticed this, Jesus has made the moves that drives the drama. He has initiated what has happened in the gospel of John. A lot of times in our own lives, we kind of feel ourselves to be the victims of our own circumstances. You know what I mean? That we find ourselves kind of being swept along by events that we don't really have control over, or we're being driven toward outcomes that, that we would rather have avoided. But in this gospel, Jesus drives the story. And you'll see that so clearly even in this passage. A few examples of this well, first we find Jesus here in this garden. This, the, the, the journey that got Jesus to this garden began with Jesus going back to Jerusalem. Despite, remember, the warnings of his friends. Despite the hostility of the authorities. He walks into danger in spite of knowing about it. Most of us would take the opposite approach, Right? We know there's danger ahead. We're going to avoid it. We're going to take the detour. We're going to go around it. We're going to bypass it. Jesus goes right into it. Secondly, he's appearing in public. He's just performed, remember, a very public miracle. If you can remember, all the way back to John chapter 11, which is only, you know, a week ago <laughs> in the story. Uh, he's performed this very public miracle just outside the city walls of Jerusalem in the town of Bethany where he's raised a man from the dead, a man named Lazarus, a miracle that attracted a lot of public interest and a, a miracle that also stirred up the determination of the powers that, that were to do away with him. John made it clear, do you remember back in chapter 13, verse 1, as we started in the upper room, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world. And later in that chapter, in 1321, we're told that he was troubled in his spirit, and he told his disciples, he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. He knows what's going on. 
He's appearing in public. He's not in hiding. And third, we've seen him send off the betrayer, Judas, to do what was in his hardened heart to do. In John 13, 27, Jesus tells Judas at the Last Supper, what you are going to do, do quickly. And so with every action that Jesus has taken, we find that he has done so with a clear understanding of the events that are about to unfold. Jesus knows what is going to happen, and he is in control of all of it. He predicted his betrayal. He led his followers out of the safety of that upper room where he had spoken to them to a place where he had begun to pray. We find that that recorded prayer uh, in several of the other Gospels as well. Uh, Also the prayer along the way in John 17 that we just looked at for the last few months. And he's now crossed over this Kidron stream out of the city, likely towards uh, what many believe were a walled, a walled garden, probably loaned to Jesus and the disciples by a wealthy friend, a place for him and his disciples to go, to be together out of the spotlight, to have some privacy. We know it was a familiar spot, right? Verse 2, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place. Jesus often met there with his disciples. It was a favorite meeting spot out of the public spotlight known to Jesus' followers. And and we might have expected that that Jesus would avoid arrest knowing that Judas is going to be the betrayer, that he wouldn't go somewhere, that Judas knew to look to find him, right? But here he is. Here he is, deliberately going there. He knew that Judas knew this is where he would go. And it's now we discover Judas has officially changed sides, hasn't he? Throughout this gospel, wherever Judas has been mentioned, if you go back and do a study, every time you find Judas mentioned, he's described as the betrayer. It's a name that that is stuck, that description is stuck to his name like glue. Judas the betrayer. Now we find his betrayal in action. And so in verse 3, Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And you'll notice that if you read the other Gospels, we call them the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all four of the Gospels talk about this incident, and all the other Gospels mention other things that John doesn't tell us. John's gospel is the last gospel to be written. He assumes that everybody knows the other details that have already been communicated. The other gospels tell us about the deal made with the religious leaders. They tell us about that financial arrangement, the 30 pieces of silver, the plot to identify Jesus with a kiss. The other gospels tell us those things, but John's focusing in on one particular scene in this story, and he's doing so on purpose. He wants us to see something here. Verse 5, John tells us that Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them, standing with Jesus' enemies. So he is officially on their side now. This is the last time that John will mention his name in his gospel. So Judas comes with two groups of armed men. There's a band of Roman soldiers and a group of Jewish 
law enforcement officers. The band here that's described of Roman soldiers is what was known as a cohort. A cohort was a tenth part of a legion. A legion would be anywhere from three to 6,000 soldiers. So this group of soldiers coming to arrest Jesus, likely between 300 and 600 Roman soldiers armed to the teeth. And it's not unusual for a group like that to come and arrest a high-value prisoner. Um, this, Paul t- tells us in Acts 23 that 470 Roman soldiers escorted him from Jerusalem to Caesarea. So here they come. It's an overwhelming show of force. And not only the Roman soldiers, but the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees who are coming to do the arresting. So this is the picture. And Jesus, verse 4, deliberately walks into the trap. Look at what verse 4 says. Knowing all that would happen to him. He knows what's coming. Every bit of it. So, first of all, Jesus drives his own destiny. Secondly, second part, look at verses 5 and 6. Notice that Jesus dismays his enemies. Again, we see Jesus has taken the initiative. He steps out of the shadows into the lights of those torches. He's about to do what he has done throughout the gospel. He's going to manifest his glory even as he is about to lose his freedom. It comes as nobody comes as a surprise to nobody uh, who reads John's gospel to know that Jesus had supernatural knowledge. He knows what's going to happen to him, and he immediately he assumes charge of the situation. Look what he does. He comes forward, he says to them, Whom do you seek? Now now he's not asking them a question because he doesn't know the answer, right? He knows the answer perfectly, but, but the question that he's asking them involves actually a reversal of the facts on the ground here, doesn't it? From a human point of view, Jesus is at a slight disadvantage, would you say? Uh, they have the weapons. They have the firepower. But here, he is taking charge of the situation. He steps forward into the light and asks them the question. He's getting them to think about why they're here. He's getting them to name him, to remember who it is that they're coming to arrest. They know his name. A lot of these guys most likely have heard him teach in the temple in Jerusalem. They would not have been able to escape the talk in Israel about his miracles, about his work. They knew who they were after, and they answered Jesus of Nazareth. They probably meant it in a derogatory manner. Nazareth, of course, was a despised place to most of the Jews. They would never think that a Messiah would ever come from Nazareth. Look at verse 5. Jesus said to them, I am He. He's not just saying, I'm the one you're looking for. Here I am. In the Greek word, the words ego I me, which we've talked about many times in John's Gospel, literally mean I, I am. These words are used three times here in this context. Verse 5, verse 6, and verse 9. We're obviously meant to notice them. We're meant to ask ourselves the question, why does Jesus use this particular way of speaking? 
Well, simply put, as most of us already know from our study in John's Gospel, this is a self-identifying expression for God. This is how God introduced himself. Remember all the way back in Exodus chapter 3 to Moses at the burning bush when Moses asked him, who should I tell Israel has sent me? And he gives him the name. I am that I am. You tell the Israelites, I am has sent you. And throughout the Old Testament, there are seven uses of this phrase. And each time, it makes perfectly clear that the one who's speaking it is none other than Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. And in John's Gospel, we've seen this phrase over and over. I, I am. It's occurred actually Seven times in the Old Testament, it occurs seven times in John's Gospel as well. You remember them. I, I am the light of the world. I, I am the bread of life. I, I am the resurrection and the life. Before Abraham was, I, I am. And the list goes on. In other words, the language that Jesus uses to these soldiers in the middle of this night is the language that is very familiar to these people, the Jewish speakers, the ones who have come to arrest him, backed up by the Roman army. They know perfectly well that when Jesus is using this phrase, he is identifying himself as the God of Israel, as the great I am. There's no question at all. And so when they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus says, I, I am, it does not escape the understanding of those men who are pushing towards him to arrest him. They know he is claiming absolute authority. They know that he's already claimed to be the true bread of heaven, to be the true vine of Israel, to be the good shepherd, to be the coming judge of all the earth. They know what he's claiming. And in verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Jesus' response to them is a work of power. Jesus is confronting the powers of darkness. And you need to see some irony here. The authorities have been waiting for this moment for a long time, right? From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, they have been plotting to put this man to death. This was their moment. They had Jesus in their grasp. Remember, as we've seen throughout John's Gospel, we've seen Jesus very elusive, haven't we? They would go looking for him. They can't find him. He'd be right in the middle of them. They'd try to arrest him. Boom, he'd slip out of their hands. Over and over, they were determined to silence them, but he would not be silenced. Every effort of theirs had failed. Every time. And yet, instead of pushing forward and arresting him at this moment that they've been waiting for, they drew back. And the idea, if you want to try to picture it in your mind, it's almost like dominoes that you've set up that all kind of collapse on each other. You can almost see this comical picture of these men drawing back at those words and bumping into the men behind them, and everybody's falling down like bowling pins. And it may be an echo of the Scripture of the Old Testament itself. Psalm 27, verse 2 says, My adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. 
at the very identification of Jesus as the Son of God, they are afraid. All 600 of them with their torches and their lanterns and their swords and their spears, they're afraid. They're terrified. And the only person that night who wasn't afraid was the one who was outnumbered multiple hundreds to one. The one who stood composed and confident in God. Acting like Moses did when he found himself with the people of Israel with their backs against the Red Sea. Acting like Elijah when he was surrounded by the Syrian army. Jesus stands firm. Totally in charge of what's going on around him. Judas and the soldiers represent the powers of darkness. Those powers of darkness are still in this world today, friends. Behind them is the evil one, the devil. Jesus had told us that. Satan had entered into the heart of Judas Iscariot. He was literally possessed by the devil at this moment. And we learn from this little scene in this drama that all the hosts of hell, all the imaginations of man have met their match in Jesus. Whatever evil lurks in the background of your life, whatever evil is yet to come, we face it in light of Jesus in this story. Do you remember what he said just before he ascended back to heaven? All all authority, all power in heaven and earth has been given to me. In this prayer that we just studied in John 17, he had said it to the Father, for he has given authority over all flesh. Here Jesus demonstrates it. All he has to do is say the words, and they tumble down. He's not having his life taken from him, brothers and sisters. Make no mistake as we progress through this passion, Jesus is not having his life taken from him. He had told his disciples that he is laying it down himself. And Jesus, at this very moment of his arrest, in his great power, is dismaying his enemies completely. Let's go on to the third part, verses 7 through 9. We see Jesus defends his people With the enemies on the ground, Jesus again asked them the question, Whom do you seek? And they reply again, maybe a little less confident, Jesus of Nazareth. He repeated the question to them, didn't he? And then he speaks up for his people. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. He says it again, I, I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. Do you see Jesus had no bargaining power here, humanly speaking, right? He's surrounded by overwhelming odds, but he's actually in control of the situation. He orders them to let his people go. Twice he's asked them, who are you here for? Twice they've replied, Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus says, well, you've come for me. Let these men go. And he did this, we're told in verse 9, for a reason, to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, 
I have lost not one. Now, when we hear that kind of formula, we're thinking, you know, maybe this is a quote from the Old Testament or something, a, a fulfillment of prophecy. But no, 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 look carefully. It says, to fulfill the word that he had spoken. This is the word of Jesus. He, he said this earlier, um, well, we were told earlier in the evening of his arrest, back in chapter 13, you remember this, the, the great verse there? Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. Remember that? He has interceded for them before his Father in heaven in chapter 17. He's reported to the Father in that prayer that of all those the Father had given him, he had lost none. He was the good shepherd. The good shepherd cares for the sheep that have been entrusted to him. The good shepherd will give his own life for his sheep. And here he is acting exactly like that good shepherd. Twice in John's gospel, he had referred to keeping of his people like this. Uh, In John 17, but also back in chapter 6. Verse 39, where he said, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. So when we find Jesus here securing the physical safety of his men, that is meant to be, as we see this in the flow of John's gospel, we, it should be no surprise at all to us, right? It's a pointer to us to the eternal safety, the eternal salvation that Jesus, by his arrest and death and resurrection, will secure for his people. He intercedes for them. He puts himself between them and their enemies. You have me, let them go. That's why Jesus came into the world, isn't it? He came into the world for his own people. Chapter 17, I pray not for the world, but for them that you have given me. And for their sakes, I consecrate, I sacrifice, I sanctify myself. He's praying as a priest there, preparing himself to be the sacrifice that will be made. You have me, let them go. Can I say to you this morning... If you're not a Christian person, this is the very heart of the Christian message. This is why Jesus came into the world. He came into the world in order that he might say, for you and for me, you have me, let them go. He's putting himself in harm's way so that his people might be safe and might be saved. Isn't that amazing? Jesus, the Bible says, is able to save to the uttermost all those who draw near to God through him. Notice fourthly, verses 10 and 11, Jesus defines his mission. So at this point in the story here, he gives a very clear word about why he's here. There's a little interlude here. It says, then... Simon Peter. Well, if you've been following this series in John's Gospel, uh, that, that in itself just kind of makes you pause for a minute, a minute, right? You think, well, what's Peter going to do now? Because here's this poor man who is, sometimes we say he suffered from uh, foot and mouth disease, right? He opened his mouth and regularly put his foot in it, right? 
Uh, and on this occasion, he doesn't fail us. Simon Peter having a sword. Well, that's not good. Here we are in the middle of the situation. The authorities are here, and Peter has a sword. And out it comes. Out the sword comes in front of the authorities. Peter hasn't really assessed the situation here, has he? There's as many as 600 Roman soldiers all around him. That's a lot of swords. That's a lot of weapons. Okay, and you've got one short sword here, Peter. Like, what are the odds, right? He's not thinking this through, but that's what Peter did, right? He never seemed to think things through. But what's Peter actually doing here? Peter was clearly ready to die in his attempt to deliver Jesus, right? And that's what he said. Remember back in chapter 13, verse 37, I will die for you. He had told Jesus this. It all sounds very noble. It sounds like, you know, the kind of thing you'd want somebody to do for you. Were you in this kind of a spot? But he has failed to understand Jesus' mission. In spite of everything Jesus had taught, he still didn't quite get it, did he? To most Jews, a dead Messiah was no Messiah at all. The eleven didn't want a dead Jesus. They wanted a repeat of that triumphal entry, you know, last Sunday when they had come into Jerusalem with Jesus on that donkey and and them behind him and everybody welcoming him and singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, you know, putting the palm branches down. And that's what they wanted. They want a repeat of that. They want a do-over of that. But Christ will not be distracted or dissuaded from his mission. He will not be pressured by our impatience or by Peter's. He will not have his followers behave as though they are an earthly army belonging to an earthly kingdom. Jesus' people may well have to suffer for Jesus, right? And didn't they? Every one of these men would. Millions of Christians throughout church history have. Some of you have. Some of you may. But Jesus will not have them fight for him. His kingdom, as he will explain later to Pilate, his kingdom is not of this world. He will not have his people bring in his reign by force. There will be no vengeance. There will be be no judgment at this time. There will be a day when God will punish His enemies. There will be a day. What a dreadful day that will be. But it is not this day. This is a day of salvation. And Jesus spells that out to Peter. He speaks to him in verse 11 after he's chopped off the man's ear, which we heard about in the the video at the, the beginning. And the fictional account there. And you, no, you notice that John tells us the name of the man, Marcus, who was the servant. The, the Greek is bond slave, the, the doulos. He was the, the slave of um, some of the religious leaders there in the temple. 
And, and why does he tell us the name Marcus? I'll, you know, all those kinds of little additions like that, names of people and places, they just add to the credibility of the gospel, to the fact that it, this is a historical account. This really happens. This is the guy's name. You know, and at the time of John's writing, you could probably go look him up. So Peter, so Jesus said to Peter, verse 11, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And there you have the key to the whole story. This is why he's here. This is why he's walked out to the garden. This is why he sent Judas off from the Last Supper. That's why he had introduced himself all through the Gospel of John to this point the way he did. That's why he intervened on behalf of his people, why he stepped forward and said, you, you have me, let them go. He was here to drink the cup. It's an expression with lots of Old Testament baggage with it, especially in Isaiah, Jeremiah. It's the cup of the wrath of God. It's, it's the cup of the anger of God against the sins of the world. It's the cup of judgment. And Jesus has come to drink that cup. To drink it up. To take it all to be exposed to the wrath of God that is coming to you and me because of our sins. What does that mean? What does that mean for Jesus to drink this cup? Well, surely the crucifixion itself, right? A dreadful way to die. A tortured way to die. But it's so much more than that, isn't it? So much more than that. What did it feel like for Jesus to drink this cup? How great was that suffering? What was it for Jesus to be forsaken by the Father? I don't know that we'll ever fully realize what He did for us. But one thing I know, one thing is clear, isn't it? He drank the cup. And he drank it for you and he drank it for me. We're going to close here in just a moment with a song. And uh, as we typically do, we would sing a song of response. Today, I'm just going to ask you to, to listen to the song. Reflect on the song. Let me try to sum up what we've learned here this morning. Friends, here is the truth. A son of Nazareth is actually the son of God. He's not going to the cross as a helpless victim. Not in the least. He had the power to lay down his life. He has the power to take it up again. And we'll see him prove both of those things true in the coming weeks. No one takes it from him. Remember that. 
He's coming to the world out of a love for his people and out of obedience to the will of the Father. And he will drink this cup. And he will drink this cup alone. There was no one else good enough to pay the price of sin. Nobody. Only Jesus could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. There we have the heart of the gospel. And what are we to do with it? Well, as John would tell us, the purpose of his whole letter in John chapter 20 and verse 31, the purpose of his whole letter, the purpose of every story that he's included in his gospel, including this one, in the garden with the 600 soldiers coming to arrest him, falling down on the ground, Peter taking his sword out, Jesus telling him to put it back, I'm going to drink the cup. This story is in the Bible according to the Apostle John for this reason. That you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that by believing, you would have life. You would be saved. And if you're here this morning and you don't have that life, and you're not saved, you're lost. And your sins are dragging you to hell where you will suffer the cup of the wrath of God yourself. If you're in that place, friend, pray this morning. Cry out to God from your heart. Help Him. Ask Him to, to help you to see, to understand, to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And everything he suffered on the cross, he did so that you could be saved, so that you could be forgiven, so that your sin can be separated from you as far as the east is from the west, that you can stand in God's sight one day, and he declares you not guilty. Because your guilt was placed in the cup that Jesus drank when he went to the cross. So please remain seated and listen as the song is sung, which captures many of the themes from our text this morning. If you're a follower of Jesus, listen and worship the Son of God this morning. And be thankful that Jesus loses no one that the Father gives him. And if you've been given to the Lord Jesus by the Father through your faith in Jesus as your Savior, you will not be lost. So worship him. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, listen to this song and pray for God to open your heart and believe. And if you need help with that, after the service, we would love to meet you just over here in the left front corner of the auditorium where a counselor will open the Bible and show you how you can become a follower of Jesus and pray with you and help you take those first steps. So listen to the song, worship the Lord Jesus, and then we'll have our benediction.